Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. We have a special episode this week devoted to a conversation I had recently as part of the Qatar Economic Forum. The topic was restructuring the global economy and the speakers were two men whose views always attract a lot of attention. Ray Dalio is the co-chief investment officer of Bridgewater Associates, the world's biggest hedge fund, which he founded in 1971. He's a multi-billionaire who also became a best-selling author recently when he put his philosophy for life and work into a book. Larry Summers is well known to listeners of Stephanomics. He's Harvard economics professor who has also been US Treasury Secretary under President Bill Clinton and head of President Obama's National Economic Council. Larry's been a loud critic of President Biden's stimulus programs. Overall, he says, the US is now following the most irresponsible fiscal policies in 40 years. Both he and Ray Dalio have been sounding the alarm on inflation too. So I started by asking about that. I mean, we have a former Fed chair sitting as Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, but that doesn't seem to have made her more concerned about the inflation that we have coming down the track and indeed can already see in the US. And uh, despite that massive fiscal stimulus that's also here and going to continue, is there something that policymakers in Washington are missing that you're seeing when you say we should be worried more about inflation? Arithmetic. I don't think the arithmetic is uh, terribly uh, difficult. Uh, We're looking at an average GDP gap relative to potential GDP of 2% this year, and we're looking at a 14% of GDP fiscal stimulus along with massive uh, growth in the Fed's balance sheet and very low real interest rates. Arithmetic. We're looking at uh, labor shortages as measured by job openings or as measured by workers' comfort in quitting at uh, record uh, levels. Arithmetic, we're looking at uh, a current rate of inflation that if you look at the last two or three months is running close to 8%. Now, no one thinks that that's the new built-in rate of inflation. So, of course, there's transient inflation. The important question is whether that is six percentage points of transient inflation or four percentage points of transient inflation. And I don't see the basis for policymakers' serenity that it's a full six percent of uh, transient uh, inflation. I welcomed... uh, the Fed's limited efforts to mark its views towards uh, reality and a growing awareness that this overheating is likely to necessitate a monetary policy uh, response. But I still think the reality of overheating, just if you look at the most basic uh, numbers, is uh, being overestimated. Uh, The prevailing forecast at the Fed, in the White House, indeed in much of the consensus of professional economic forecasters in February was that we would have inflation just above 2% this year. We've already had more inflation than that in the first five months 
of uh, the year. That would suggest to me that people should not just modify their forecasts, but should think about what their errors of thinking were that uh, led them to be so far off in their forecasts. So, Ray, we had uh, there from Larry, the economist, indeed, that the, the mathematician's uh, response uh, to, to the situation. I mean, as an investor, um, we've seen that pivot of some, of some kind uh, by the Fed last week, quite a calm market reaction. But should markets, should investors generally be taking this threat a lot more seriously? There are different kinds of inflation. Um, I'm not particularly worried about the classic uh, supply, uh, you know, demand pressing up against supply, although we'll find out soon because <clears throat> there's something like 10% of GDP stored in financial assets that's going to be coming out and so it's likely that there's going to be a big pickup in demand, and that will probably raise uh, prices uh, significantly. And it also depends how you count for inflation, because like housing prices, housing prices themselves are going up a lot, but uh, rental prices are going down a lot. And, and if you went to a 3% inflation rate or, or some bounce, I, you know, that, that, that's not one of those things that gets me very nervous or very excited. The real issue is that we have a supply-demand issue of uh, bonds because we're going to have to sell a lot of bonds to those um, uh, in the world who own bond inventories. And they have uh, very low interest rates, uh, negative real interest rates, and they're overweighted in U.S. bonds and they're going to have to buy a lot more. And that is also coming at a time when Chinese capital markets, other capital markets are becoming more attractive. That creates a supply demand issue that can create a monetary inflation because um, there will not be enough demand to buy those bonds. And that means that it's likely that the Federal Reserve will not be able to taper or cut back and might actually have to increase to prevent interest rates from going up. And that's a classic monetary inflation. So that's my bigger concern um, than uh, just the, the spurt. Larry, how much would you say this is a global issue, not just something that's related to US fiscal policy, for example? Look, I would say um, we're driving our car at 100 miles an hour on a road that is empty right now, but won't always be empty. And I don't know what form the accident will come, but when you're driving 100 miles an hour, it's probably not actually the fastest way to get where you're going because you're likely to have some kind of dislocation. And whether that comes in product and labor markets, whether that comes in spiking of uh, interest rates, whether that comes first in a decline in uh, the value of the dollar, I don't presume to be able to predict, but that we're on a problematic course where anything can happen and none of us can predict uh, markets precisely, but where the balance of risks is very, very much on the too much liquidity overheating side seems to me to be relatively clear. I think these tendencies are present in many places, but I think they're by far more pronounced in the United States uh, than they are in uh, the rest of the world. 
Um, it's not that extraordinarily low interest rates are unique. It's not that extraordinarily big budget deficits are unique. It's that having them in tandem with uh, an economy that's growing at what people think, I expect, will be a double-digit rate this quarter, and um, along with an epic degree of labor shortage. That's what is, uh, it seems to me, the extraordinary feature of, uh, of, this, uh, of this moment. It would be a very different thing if we were creating a liquidity in an extraordinary way to respond to a major uh, output gap. But to be doing this kind of thing in a labor shortage uh, economy seems to me to be uh, very intensely problematic. You mentioned the dollar. I mean, I guess one could see there are different scenarios that come out of this. I mean, the classic scenario for the U.S. growing faster than everybody else, sucking in a lot of imports would be that actually the dollar could rise and export problems to the rest of the world that way. But I know, but Ray, you just mentioned that uh, you potentially see the dollar heading down. So is, this, is there a fundamental threat to the dollar that comes out of this? Uh, yes. <clears throat> uh, the way I mean, I'm just dealing with the mechanics. You know, the way it works is you sell a lot of bonds. So now who do you sell the bonds to? And then when I look around <clears throat> and calculate who owns the bonds and uh, what they have to buy um, and what the incentives of buying, uh, they're they're bad. And in fact, you could see dollar uh, selling of bonds. What that means is then the Federal Reserve is in a position of either seeing rates rise because there's not enough demand to meet that. In fact, if they start selling, it would be a very bad situation. And that they can't let that happen because that would be very bad for the economy and, and markets and all sorts of things. So we have to keep in mind where we are. We're at the end of a long-term debt cycle. And that means that uh, the Federal Reserve will have to do what they did last time which is to buy a lot more to prevent the interest rates from going up. That's very non-cyclical. It's one of those cases where, you know, in, in reserve currencies, it's a, it's a very dangerous thing. Now, you compare that with alternatives. Um, first, the best alternatives are other asset classes. But also, let's say China, for example. I think the situation that we're in is quite similar to the going from the late, seven, late 60s into the early 70s when it was a different core inflation rate in the United States versus uh, Germany and Japan. It's a different balance of payments situation. We're in a basically a balance of payments deficit. They're in a balance of payments surplus position. That means that um, they chronologically are worried about imported inflation and there's favorable capital flows. So I think that that's negative for the dollar, particularly against Asian currencies. I have uh, raised instincts, but considerable agnosticism on uh, timing. There are classic periods in the early 1980s is the one that comes to mind where large budget deficits spurred growth, sucked in capital 
and were associated with an appreciation of uh, the dollar. So I'm not sure of the timing here, but I think, and I'm not as confident as Ray is uh, in the long-term attractiveness of Chinese uh, capital markets and indeed of foreign uh, capital uh, markets uh, to the dollar. But I think the risks are substantial. And one of the things that I hear people say that seems most bizarre to me is they say, no, you don't understand. Um, Now we're in an era of globalization. And so the inflation process is much stickier or we can't get rapid inflation because of globalization. I think the opposite. Because of globalization, we're much more like a small country than we used to be. And that means that the dollar gets into trouble, which it easily could, that the pass-through to inflation is going to be more rapid than it would have been uh, decades, uh, decades ago. So I basically share the kind of concern uh, that uh, Ray is uh, expressing, just with a bit more uncertainty about timing. And I guess I'd add one more thing, uh, Stephanie, and I think it's kind of an important uh, point, and it's implicit in something that Ray said. The really hard monetary policy challenges are not actually moments like the period after Lehman or the period a year ago this spring, when there's massive illiquidity and markets are breaking down, and it's entirely obvious the direction that policy should move, you need to provide liquidity and the questions have to do with how. The really hard monetary policy dilemmas are when it's not clear which way to go. When on the one hand, you have a falling currency and an excess supply of bonds. And on the other hand, you have a weakening uh, economy and rising uh, inequality and a fear of recession, and you don't know whether you're um, cutting rates to respond to the latter problem or doing tightening things to respond to the former problem. Those are the really difficult moments in monetary policy where even the direction is not entirely clear. And My fear is that we're setting ourselves up for such a moment. I think the the Fed would argue that they are actively looking to have that overshoot in inflation, the change of approach in terms of the average inflation model, in order to sort of reset the system and indeed get that wage growth through to parts of the economy that perhaps have not seen it over the last few years, and that that could be more politically sustainable long term. So, so Ray, do you see that 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 is an argument that the, the Fed could make? Uh, that it's worth some short-term risk uh, to achieve that more sustainable yeah, I, outcome. As I, as I mentioned, um, I think if you see uh, break-even inflation rates go above 3% or something like that, and you see that spurt, then you have the dilemma of the tightening of the monetary policy. Uh, as I said, I, I, I'm not particularly worried about uh, that particular inflation. But the other things that worry about me are um, the whole shift um, in terms of the quantity of debt money that's being produced that goes into create bubbles, creates an enormous amount of liquidity, 
um, and that I think will be manifest by either a rate rise, tracing inflation, or um, or dollar decline. And I think then we also have to deal with the changes in um, uh, the political situation, the wealth gap situation. The um, the with the wealth gap is the left right question. Um, there's a lot of conflict in terms of left right politics. There's there's a, a big move, pretty much probably to uh, more left politics, believing that there's not enough fair share of incomes and and so on. And those will create structural changes that will have um, um, uh, effects. The amount of money which is go- has gone to profits has increased from about six percent of revenue to about fourteen percent of revenue, and that's <clears throat> decreased the share that's gone to incomes. Those things could be structural changes um, that shift the wealth and income. I think they we're here to uh, those that are going to be more beneficial, let's say, to workers than to um, capitalists. I think in general, that's a particularly a U.S. issue. It is a European issue too, although it's a world issue. But it differs around the world. So um, I think those are the bigger issues. That and the rise of China. And what the rise of China means, those are, I think are the bigger issues. Larry, I mean, the global, when you say the globalization, it's an interesting point about us becoming more like a single, a single country responding to things. But one could argue that the things that globalization was associated structurally with falling inflation for a long time at a period where you also had central banks focusing more on inflation and you had this sort of shift in bargaining power away from workers if all of those things are going into reverse, um, that is potentially more inflationary, but also uh, a better world for, for workers or a more inclusive world, more sustainable politically? Let me, let me take your question a moment ago and then, and then come to that, Stephanie. Um, look, I, I think the arguments about average inflation targeting and so forth, they kind of have their, have their place. But... I think we need to recognize when you declare victory, when we've got a record labor shortage. The Fed probably shouldn't be obsessing about um, making sure there are opportunities available. When we've now got average inflation over the last two or three years up to 2%, we don't have the problem of needing more inflation in order to get to some kind of uh, level of uh, average. So I just think we need to recognize the new reality is very different from the secular stagnation reality of two years ago. Look, I am all for a strengthening on a variety of dimensions at the hand of workers. I think we need to raise the minimum wage. I think we need to re-empower the ability to organize unions. I think that you can't read the stories about working conditions at Amazon and not think that something should be happening to uh, rebalance uh, things. At the same time, I think you have to recognize that doing all of those uh, things is going to bear on the inflation process, it's going to bear on what economists call the natural rate of unemployment. And you're going to have it have a set of consequences, and you need to factor those in 
uh, in, in setting macroeconomic policy. I mean, we had a moment very much uh, like the current moment, coming after a long period of no inflation. We had a government that had very expansive desires for what it was going to do. We had a progressive tide sweeping through the country, changing attitudes on very many fronts. We had that in the 1960s. And what we saw was that inflation um, rose more rapidly than anybody anticipated, that a right-wing tide in politics was uh, ushered in with the successive elections with lags of Richard Nixon and uh, Ronald Reagan, and that what happened in the ultimately did not serve the interests of the progressives who supported it. And uh, you saw a big upsurge with the way in which the United States went off gold and imposed uh, tariffs universally uh, 50 years ago uh, this uh, summer. So a return to uh, that does not seem to me to be what we should be targeting. I think Larry and I uh, agree that this is looking more like the late 60s um, and transitioning to the early 70s. Um, and that has implications for the balance payments in the dollar. So we've covered that. Um, I'm, I'm more worried about um, the inflation in uh, financial assets and what that means for returns and uh, bubbles that are developing, because there's a massive amount of liquidity around and it's being thrown around so that it's a difficult environment uh, for uh, those returns to be uh, justified. I think we're building kind of a bubble. So um, I think inflation in financial assets and so on is, um, is an issue related to liquidity. Anyway, you think about it, uh, what's happened is the net worth of, um, of, of Americans and most people in, in, in developed countries is higher than it's ever been. I mean, all of a sudden, it was a big boost to net income. Yet production isn't. So what you've seen is a lot of people got a lot of money, which they're still holding, and they put it into the stock market and everything, and interest rates go down and they borrow. And that is a dynamic that creates a bubble. And that's what I would say is um, the, main, the main issue. Let me just say that there's some division of labor on this panel, and Ray has talked more about financial assets, but I share his uh, concern about uh, asset price uh, inflation. And I would say the idea that lower returns have led to higher asset prices, and of course, while that transition is taking place, everybody's enjoying wonderful capital gains. There's been a tendency for people like me and Ray to warn for some years now that long-term returns are going to be lower on assets. And we've been saying that for some years, and people who've been in asset markets have done very, very well because even lower, uh, even higher capitalization ratios, price-earnings ratios, asset price-to-rent ratios have been taking place. And 
I suppose some people are probably concluding that the warnings are unwarranted as a consequence of that. Nobody knows for sure, but my feeling would be that the warnings are now even more valid because the conditions precedent that are the basis for the warnings have become even more true with the passage of time. Both of you have, you come at it from different perspectives, you may put different shades on it, but you clearly think that there's some potential bumps coming down the road and or risks that we need to be much more concerned about. Larry, I know you wish that that stimulus in the US had been spent on different things at the beginning of the year that might actually support the supply side of the US economy um, and uh, other things. You know, we've, that mistakes, if you like, have already been made in your view. But What's the best response, if, assuming that the Fed and indeed other policymakers accept your analysis, what's the most constructive response now that wouldn't itself cause a lot of volatility and upset? Necessary responses probably will in the short run cause some volatility and upset. But I'd like to see signals that uh, overheating liquidity and uh, bubbles are now seen as major risks facing the American economy. And I'd like to see a program of structural improvement for the supply side that is fully paid for by uh, tax increases as the response and a reduction in the amount of populist uh, transferring of uh, cash to large groups um, in the economy. I think we know that um, I, I, I'll, I'll probably Larry and I agree on just saying it very simply. Um, there's a ton of money around uh, and the value of money goes down and how much it goes down relative to goods and services and how much it goes down to financial assets. It's going to go down to both. And that really raises financial assets and it changes capital flows in important ways. I think that it, it um, it's easy to say that the Fed should tighten, and I think that um, they, they should. They put on the brakes in a little bit. But I think you'll see a very sensitive market and a very sensitive economy because the duration of assets has gone very, very long. And just the slightest touching on those brakes has the effect of um, uh, hurting markets because of where they're priced and also um, passing through to the economy. We have to keep in mind, since the cyclical peak in 1980-81, every cyclical peak in interest rates and every cyclical trough has gone steadily below the one um, before it until we've hit zero. And then every quantitative easing, in other words, purchasing of uh, money, buying of money and purchasing of bonds has been greater than the one before it. That is a debasement of the value of the currency in one way or another. So uh, I, think the, I think the challenge of the Fed is going to be able to balance those in a highly political, sensitive environment because of this wealth clash. So it's a difficult position for the Fed, I think. Well, that's, um, that's, that's two perspectives we've had on the, what, what leadership in a post-pandemic world looks like. And I know we, we, we've, we focused a lot on this as financial piece, um, but it clearly has huge global implications uh, as well as implications for the path the U.S. economy is on for the next few years. So thank you very much to both of you, Ray Dalio and Lawrence Summers. We appreciate you, you, uh, you joining us.
that's it for this episode of Stephanomics. We'll be back with more reporting on as well as analysing of the global economy next week. But you can get more in the meantime from the Bloomberg Terminal or website and by following at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen with thanks to Ray Dalio, Larry Summers and Lisa Archambault. Mike Sasso is executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy.